Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength in Weakness. open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we'll be continuing today in our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. That's like how we like to study the Bible here at Whitefield, studying through whole books of the Bible. We're currently studying through 2 Corinthians in a series called Strength in Weakness. And today we come to chapter 6. We'll be picking up in verse 11. So go ahead and turn there and let's bow our heads and pray as we open God's word. Lord, we come today this morning expectant to hear from you, Lord, desiring to be receptive to what your word has to say to us. So Lord, give us those expectant, receptive hearts this morning as we hear your word, as we read it, as we take it in and consider how it applies to our lives. So we pray that where needed, Lord, you would meet our needs. For those who come in here needing encouragement and comfort, I pray that you would encourage and comfort them. For those coming in needing um, conviction, Lord, I pray you'd give them conviction. For those who just need a, a sense of your love and care for them, Lord, I pray that you would meet them in that place. Minister to us by your spirit, through your word, as you know our needs, we ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was an Easter Sunday a few years ago, and my parents had offered to host us for dinner. Uh, so we did church in the morning, and then we went to my parents' house in the evening. Well, my dad, he knew that we liked to eat ham on Easter. Easter. So he went out and he bought like this nice, expensive spiral cut ham for us to eat. Now he had seen on some cooking shows how uh, you can like, you can pin like pieces of pineapple to the ham. It kind of gives it a nice citrusy flavor. So he looked up some recipes. All these recipes he looked up, they all called for canned pineapple. And he said, no way. Canned pineapple sounds gross. I'm not eating canned fruit. I'm going, I'm buying a real pineapple. I'm going to cut that thing up, make my own pineapple rings. So that's what he did. Went out, bought a fresh pineapple, cut it up, made his own pineapple rings. And then to maximize the pineapple flavor, he saved the juice from that pineapple. Then he, he pinned his pineapple rings onto the ham. He placed it in a cooking bag. He poured the pineapple juice over it and then sealed it up to let it marinate for a few hours before we enjoyed it together for dinner. Well, when dinner time came around, everybody was at the house. We were all seated, ready, you know, for dinner to be served. So my dad goes in the kitchen. He starts getting ready to cut the ham. So he opens this cooking bag. And you know what he found in there? Rather than a, a sweet, citrusy ham, what he found was just a pile of mush, right? Like a complete pile of mush. Nothing solid whatsoever. You see, the acid from that fresh pineapple was so strong, it had dissolved the meat. It like almost liquefied it to the point where there was nothing solid in there at all, right? It was just a bag full of like citrusy meat sludge, right? And so uh, there wasn't even like a, there really wasn't even a single piece of meat that could be eaten. And so that Easter, we had one of our more healthy holiday meals. There's a lot of salad, 
Um, not by choice, though, right? And so honestly, though, I just want you to know, I'm not being critical of my dad. This is something we always laugh about because, you know, like him, I would not have known that. I would have assumed that, you know, fresh pineapple is better than canned pineapple. Those are two perfectly good ingredients. Why wouldn't they go well together? But as it turns out, this is an example of how you can have two things which seem like they would go together well, but in reality, when you put them together, it's not good. It results in things that are disastrous. Now, listen, that principle doesn't apply only to cooking. That also applies, more importantly, to our lives and to relationships. In our text today, we come to a passage in the Bible where we're told that if we are followers of Jesus, then we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. To do so it's kind of like putting a ham into a bag with a bunch of fresh pineapple juice. It doesn't turn out very well. And in our text today, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what it means to be unequally yoked. What does that phrase mean? And here's what I want you to see. It's about a lot more than just who you date and who you marry. It's a lot more than that, and I hope you'll stay tuned to see that. So the title of today's message is, What Does It Mean to Be Unequally Yoked? And here's what we're going to see in our passage. Here's our summary sentence, which I'd love for you to write down. It'll serve as our outline and guide as we walk through this passage this morning. Here it is. As new creations in Christ, we have a new approach to relationships defined by the new identity and purpose we have received in him. So one more time, then we'll break it down and we'll use it as our outline for studying this passage. So as new creations in Christ, we have a new approach to relationships defined by the new identity and purpose we have received in him. So let's look at the first part of that. As new creations in Christ, Paul the apostle had a strained relationship with the Christians in Corinth. That's one of the reasons why he wrote this letter. You see, Paul and the Corinthians, they had a lot of history together. Paul had been their first pastor. And even after he left Corinth, he still visited and he still kept in touch with them. But in the years since Paul left Corinth, there had been a growing faction in the church that didn't really appreciate Paul's continued involvement in the affairs and the matters of their church. And this group became increasingly critical of Paul. And they were increasingly vocal with their criticisms. They let it be known that they didn't like Paul and why they didn't like him. On the one hand, they questioned Paul's authority as an apostle. Essentially, they said, who does this guy think he is to keep coming around here and telling us what to do? He needs to just get out of our business and mind his own business. Some of them began pointing out the fact that Paul had experienced an inordinate amount of suffering in his life. And they took that as an opportunity to say, look, maybe this is the reason why Paul has all these problems in his life. Maybe it's because he's not really a man of God. Maybe it's because God doesn't really approve of him. Maybe he's just a spiritual wimp rather than a spiritual giant. Because if he was really a spiritual man, if he was really anointed, if God was really with him, then he wouldn't experience this many hardships and difficulties in his life. He'd be more victorious. He'd be a winner. And therefore, they said, we don't have to listen to anything Paul says. See, he's not even a real spiritual authority. God's not even with him, they said, based on the fact that Paul suffered so many difficulties. And here in this letter, Paul is responding to this. And he's saying, yes, I have suffered a lot. But you know what? I'm not ashamed of my suffering because suffering is not a sign that God has abandoned you 
Rather, suffering is part of life in a fallen, broken world, and it's something that God uses in order to bring about and accomplish beautiful things both in and through those who are his children. Now listen, there are some things which can only be accomplished through suffering. The greatest example of that, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus came into the world and he provided redemption for us, for our sins, by suffering on the cross. You see, if Jesus suffered and his suffering was the means by which God accomplished good things for us, then suffering is not something to be ashamed of. Rather, it's something to be seen as an opportunity for God's strength to be experienced and shown in and through our lives. But again, uh, the setting for this letter is that there was a rift in the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. And Paul addresses that relational rift here in chapter 6, starting in verse 11, going through verse 13. Here's what it says. Paul says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak now as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Paul has been very direct with the Corinthians. He hasn't hesitated to correct them when he thought it was necessary. But he wants them to know. The fact that I have spoken directly to you, the fact that I have corrected you at times, it doesn't mean that I don't love you. I absolutely do. And now I'm asking you, Paul says, I'm asking you to reciprocate that, to open your heart toward me as well. You see, this appeal that Paul makes here in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6, it comes at the tail end of a section in which Paul has been talking about the radical, fundamental change that takes place within a person when they come to believe in Jesus. Paul described that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now what this tells us is that when you embrace Jesus as your Savior, what God does in you is more than just forgive your sins. He certainly does that, but he does something much more than that when you come to follow him, put your faith in him, and trust in him. When you put your faith in Jesus, God begins a work of transformation in your life that is so radical that it's as if you become a whole new person altogether. It's as if you went from being one kind of creature to a different kind of creature entirely. On the one hand, you get a new status before God. You get a new standing. You go from being unrighteous and subject to judgment and, and the like for the wrong things that you've done. You go from being unrighteous to being declared righteous. That's your new status before God, right with God, an heir of heaven, a friend of God because of what Jesus accomplished for you. And not only does your status change in Christ, but when you come to believe in Jesus, the Bible tells us that at that point, God places his Holy Spirit inside of you. The Holy Spirit begins to indwell you and change you, even changing your most fundamental desires, giving you a new purpose and a new mission, no longer just to live to please yourself, but now to live for something bigger than yourself, to be an agent of God's mission in the world as he's seeking to spread his love and save the lost through the knowledge of him. And so as new creations in Christ, 
this new identity that we have, this new purpose and mission that we've received in Jesus, it gives us a whole new approach to relationships, which is what Paul's going to talk about next here in this passage. So that brings us to the second part of our sentence. As new creations in Christ, we have a new approach to relationships. Notice what Paul says again in verse 12. He says, we are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that any tension that exists between them, it's not mutual. It doesn't go both ways. Paul is saying, even if you don't have affection for me, I still have affection for you. My heart is open to you, and I'm going to love you even if you don't love me back. What Paul is expressing here is an approach to relationships which is radically different than the way we are naturally inclined to think and to act as human beings. Our natural tendency is to say, if you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. But if you're not nice to me, then I will close off my heart to you. Paul is telling the Corinthians, I refuse to do that. I refuse to give up on you. Even though you've offended me, even though you've spoken out against me, you spoke badly about me, you've assumed the worst about me, I'm still not going to give up on you. I will not withhold my affection from you. Now this way of thinking, this is the way of Jesus, you see? This is God's approach to relationships. He doesn't give his love based on earning or deserving. Furthermore, we're told about God's approach to relationships in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, where we're told that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Again, God's approach to love is that when we mess up, he doesn't give up on us. He's faithful. As new creations in Christ, as people whom God has placed, in whom God has placed his Holy Spirit to form us and shape us, to make us more like Jesus, as that's happening, it gives us a new approach to relationships. Rather than being self-focused, self-absorbed, self-serving, we now seek to love others in the ways that God has loved us. And Paul tells the Corinthians, he says this, even if you withhold your affection from me, I'm not going to withhold my affection from you. And he says in verse 13, I speak to you as if speaking to my own children. Listen, a good father might dislike what their ch child is doing. They might disagree with what their child is doing. They might also correct their child at times, but they never stop loving that child. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that's how he feels about them. And his hope is that they'll reciprocate that and show him love in return. You see, at the root of the problem between the Corinthians and Paul was an issue of love. That was what was at the root of it. Although the Corinthians were withholding their love from Paul, it's important to note, it's not that the Corinthians were completely devoid of love altogether. It's not that they had no love for anyone or anything. No, the issue is that the Corinthians were directing their love towards things that were not good, which is why Paul says in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, when Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, 
he's drawing a vivid picture for us, really, with his words. A yoke is a wooden harness that was used to bind two animals together so they could work together to pull a plow or to pull a cart. You know, if you've seen those pictures of people crossing the Oregon Trail with those ox trains, ox carts, you know, the ox are joined together with what? With a yoke between them. It's that wooden harness that binds the two animals together. Now, in the law of Moses, it was actually forbidden to yoke two different kinds of animals together. It says, for example, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You can put two donkeys together. You can put two oxen together, but you can't put one ox and one donkey together in the same yoke. Now, the reason is because to do that would be kind of a, a form of cruelty. It would cause pain and frustration for those animals because an ox and a donkey are two very different animals. They're, they're different creatures. They're different in size. They're different in temperament. Furthermore, one of those animals was considered clean while the other one was considered unclean. And so it was against the law to bind them together in the same yoke. So Paul is referring back to this Old Testament law and he's saying, think about this. Just as it's forbidden to yoke two different kinds of animals together, in the same way, you are a new creation in Christ. So therefore, make sure that you are not yoking yourself together with unbelievers, which means joining yourself in a close and intimate way with those who are not followers of Jesus. Now, the way this verse is most often applied is in regard to marriage and dating relationships. And I would say that is certainly appropriate and good application of what this verse has to say. And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But first, what I want you to see first, though, is this, that marriage and dating is not primarily what Paul is referring to here when he says, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers, right? That's not his primary thing that he has in, in mind when he says this, when he writes this to the Corinthians. I mean, just think about it. He's been talking about in the context, right? He's been talking about the message of the gospel and what happens when a person puts their faith in Jesus. He's been talking about how the gospel is the thing that has given him strength to be able to endure the trials and hardships he's faced and still maintain trust in God and a sense of hope. And then, out of nowhere, he just says, all right, but let me just say this. Nobody should be out there dating or marrying anybody who's not a Christian. All right, got it? All right, let's get back to what we were talking about, right? Is this just, is that what this is? Just a total non sequitur, like total, like out of left field. He makes a hard left turn, right? Just talking about Jesus, and then all of a sudden, and don't you be dating anybody who's not a Christian. All right, let's get back to Jesus. You see, that's, that's not what he's doing here. See, when Paul says, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers, he's not primarily addressing the dating habits of the Corinthian Christians. What he's speaking about is the Corinthians' propensity to yoke themselves to the values and desires of the world. So keep that in mind. Yoking themselves to the values and desires of the world. You see, what was at the root of the strained relationship between Paul and the Corinthians is that the Corinthians were aligning themselves with the values and desires of the world rather than with the values and desires of Jesus. It's as if they were yoking themselves to the unbelieving world rather than yoking themselves to Jesus. Now remember, a yoke was for the purpose of joining two animals together so they could plow a field. And Paul's telling them, 
in Christ, you're a new creation. You're a different kind of creature. You're a whole new animal. And as such, rather than binding yourself to the values of this world and working for the goals that this world is pursuing, God has called you to bind yourself to him. And he's got a whole new field for you to plow, a whole new work for you to be about, and a different mission for you to pursue. Here's how the Apostle John explains what it means to be yoked to the values and pursuits of this world. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but from the world. See, these are the things that the unbelieving world desires and values and pursues. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. In other words, these are kind of carnal, self-serving, self-glorifying pursuits. What we've seen throughout this book is that there were people in Corinth who criticized Paul because of his weaknesses, because of his sufferings. They went around saying that Paul was weak and that he was a loser. And instead, they boasted about themselves that they were winners. They didn't have problems like Paul did. Look how successful they were. Look how healthy they were. Look how wealthy they were. Clearly, that was the sign of God's approval on their lives. And Paul is saying, don't you see? You guys have embraced the values of this world, not the values of Jesus. Even though you are Christians, you're unequally yoked to this world. This is a powerful message for all of us to consider. What Paul's saying here is that it's possible to be a Christian and yet still be embracing the values and pursuing the goals in your life, which are not Jesus's values and not Jesus's goals. I think that's something that all of us need to consider and think through, to take inventory of our lives and ask God to search our hearts and be really honest. What are the true guiding principles in your life? What really motivates you what are you truly pursuing in your life? Are they just worldly things like success and power and glory? Or do you have the values and the mission of Jesus? Self-sacrifice, forgiveness, love for the sake of God's glory and for the good of others. You see, when it says in 1 John, do not love the world or anything in the world, what he's talking about is this idea of like being enamored with the goals and values that people who don't know Jesus are, are, are enamored with, loving those things. You see, at the same time that we're told not to love the world, remember that we're also told that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so in that sense, we are called to love the people in the world. And Jesus, he calls to us and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. How will he give you rest? Look, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is an incredible thing that Jesus is saying here. Think about this. He's saying, hey, you, 
you who have been having you you have been having the yoke of this world upon your shoulders. You've had the yoke of this world upon your neck. You've been trying to live up to the values and the goals of this world. You've been pursuing the worldly pursuits. Listen, that's a heavy burden, man. It will crush you. It will chew you up and spit you out. Instead, you should leave that behind and come and link yourself up to me instead. Take up my mission. Join me in what I'm doing. And if you do, you will find rest for your soul. Now, for a person who has become a new creation in Christ, who has yoked themselves to Jesus rather than to the unbelieving world, it naturally follows that they wouldn't want to choose a person who isn't also a Christian when it comes to the most significant relationships in their life. And this is where this passage does absolutely apply to marriage and dating. Just to put it very plainly, if you're a Christian, this verse is teaching that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't marry somebody who's not a Christian. Why? Is it because you're better than them? Maybe not, right? I've, I've met some of you, and I've, I've met some of them, and you know, they're you know what I'm saying? It might be that they're actually really a lot nicer than you are. Uh, the, the issue is not like who's a better person, who's nicer, etc. The issue is this, that in that case, you are actually living your life for two very different purposes. It's like two different animals. If you yoke them together, it results in pain and frustration. You know, listen, I talk to people all the time, especially on the radio. You know, people call in and they'll ask me what to do because they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend who's not a Christian, but they're really great. They're a really great person. They're kind. They're generous. They're thoughtful. They're just not a Christian. And they'll say, I really love this person. I think that he or she would make a great spouse, make a great parent. Don't you think it would be okay? Maybe they'll come around. Maybe I can influence them towards Jesus because if I break up with them, well, then they'll never want to be a Christian because, because I broke up with them for that reason. And here's what I would say to that. I'd say, first of all, look, loving someone and marrying someone, two different things. I think you should love a lot of people. I don't think you should marry them all. I love lots of people. I don't marry all the people I love, right? And furthermore, look, I've been a pastor for like almost 20 years now, and I've seen a lot of people in unequally yoked marriages. I've only seen very few cases where the unbelieving spouse became a Christian. I've also seen cases where somebody kind of drew a line in the sand and said, you know what? I can't be together with you because I'm yoked to Jesus and you're not. And I've seen that actually be something that God uses to, as a wake-up call in that person's life. Overwhelmingly, though, I, when I have talked to people who are in unequally yoked marriages, I have talked to people who are full of frustrations and oftentimes full of regrets. What often happens is that when, a couple, um, when couples are young, you're starting out in life, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal if one goes to church on Sunday morning and the other stays home or does something else. But especially when kids come into the picture, that complicates things greatly. You see, even if the unbelieving spouse says that they'll allow the believing spouse to raise the kids in church and teach them about Jesus, the fact that that other parent doesn't believe and doesn't participate 
adds a serious level of confusion and difficulty for the child. Everyone I've seen who's in an unequally yoked relationship and marriage, for them, it's a struggle, a real struggle for them to keep their relationship with God strong and vibrant. Because their most significant partner in life doesn't support them, right? Doesn't share their faith with them and and isn't there to encourage them and help them along when they're weak. Listen, for those of you who are, maybe you're like, well, it's too late, right? I'm already there. For those of you who are already married to someone who's not a Christian, understand the Bible speaks very clearly to that situation as well. It tells you this, stay in that marriage and love your spouse and try to influence them towards Jesus through the witness of your words and your conduct. But for those who aren't married yet, I want to encourage you, take heed to the wisdom of God's word. Understand that he speaks this to you because he loves you. This is for your good. I've talked to a lot of people who have said, you know, well, I just don't have a lot of prospects. Like there's this one person, and that's the only person who is ever going to be a you know, potential spouse for me. And so I have to decide. I can either be alone forever or I can marry this person who happens to not be a Christian. Again, to them, I would say this. You are better off yoking yourself to Jesus because there are more important things than just getting married at all costs. Listen, as part of the body of Christ, there are ways to meet your need for companionship in godly good ways that don't mean just going and marrying somebody who God tells you not to marry just because you feel that you must be married in order to be fulfilled or to not be alone. Listen, marrying someone who is a Christian, I'll tell you this, just if you just marry someone who is a Christian, that doesn't guarantee that it will be easy. But if you are a Christian, if you're a new creation with a new identity and a new purpose, if you've yoked yourself to Jesus and you're walking with him and involved in his mission, then the most basic criteria for someone you might marry is that they share those same values and that same purpose in life. It doesn't matter how cute they are, really, because beauty fades, okay? I just talked to somebody this morning. He said, you know, when I got married, I had a six-pack, and now it's more like a keg, right? Like, and what matters most is that you have the same foundation for your life, and you're walking the same path, yoked to Jesus, engaged in his work. You see, but again, this isn't just about who you marry. Understand this. It's about not hitching yourself to the values and goals of this unbelieving world. And that applies to all your relationships. You know what? It also applies to the media that you consume. Don't you have a relationship with your media that influences the way you think? Listen, anything that significantly influences your thinking away from the mind of Christ, that's a way of being unequally yoked. What Paul is not saying here is that Christians should never associate with people who are not Christians. He's not saying that. He's not saying that if you're a Christian, then you shouldn't have any friends who aren't Christians. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes it abundantly clear that's not what he's talking about. He says, I'm not telling you to leave the world and not have any contact with anyone who's not a believer. After all, for us as Christians, we need to have relationships and interactions with people who don't know and love and follow Jesus because we're called to be salt and light in the world. 
What he is talking about, though, is the relationships which influence your thinking. Okay, the relationships which influence your thinking. It's important to find and invest in relationships which influence your thinking towards the way of Jesus and be cautious and use wisdom in regard to relationships or other influences which push you towards worldly values and pursuits. And by the way, this is why we're always encouraging here at the church to join a group and join a team because we know that those are places where you are going to start making some of those relationships that are going to build you up and encourage you in your walk with Jesus. But what we see here is a new approach to relationships that we have now as new creations in Christ. Loving others as God has loved us in Christ and yoking ourselves to Jesus rather than yoking ourselves to the world. That brings us to the final part of our sentence. As new creations in Christ, we have a new approach to relationships defined by the new identity and purpose we've received in him. Look at verse 14. It says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here Paul is drawing on Old Testament verses, and he's pointing out to us what God has done for us in Christ. Although we were once unrighteous before God because of our sins and trespasses, our shortcomings and failures, now in Christ we've been declared righteous Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and now he gives you his perfect record, his report card with your name on it as a gift. He brought you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. He's placed his spirit inside of you and brought you into his body, the church, the family of believers who together form the temple of the living God. He's cleansed our souls from everything that defiles us so we can stand before God unashamed. Though we were at one time his enemies, he has not only forgiven us, but he's taken this humongous step beyond that and adopted us as his children. Rather than rejecting you, he's called you and welcomed you to himself and he cares for you as a father. And all of these things he did for us by coming to us. And one day he will come again and take us to be with him so that where he is, so that where, we, so that where he is, we will also be forever. And Paul says, concluding this whole section in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Because of all that Jesus has done for us, it should motivate us to separate ourselves from worldly thinking, from the values and pursuits of the unbelieving world, and pursue an even closer relationship with God. You know, there's a sense in which holiness is something that God works in us by his spirit as he changes us from the inside out. But here we're reminded that holiness is also something that we can, we're called to pursue. And we're to do so in the fear of God, out of reverence for who God is and in response to what he's done. 
And so I want to challenge you this week to reflect on all that God has done for you and respond by pursuing holiness. Maybe there are some worldly influences that you need to separate yourself from. Maybe you've been pursuing success according to this world's values and this world's metrics, and it's left you feeling weary and burdened. Jesus invites you to come to him, to take up his yoke instead. And as you walk with him, as you join yourself to what he's doing, you will find rest for your souls. As new creations in Christ, we have a new approach to relationships defined by the new identity and purpose we've received in him. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.